I told you last week that this section marks a section, chapters 5 through the rest of chapter 10, all the way to chapter 11, where Jesus is going to confront real hostility. And you're, you're going to, you, you get the flavor of it right now. Well, it, it, I mean, how much more do you need to hear than people want to kill you for the things that you do and say? That's hostility. So, so Jesus is confronting hostility, and he's confronting it from the religious leaders of the day, of whom, these are the Pharisees, many of them, there's other religious sects as well, but Jesus would have been, would have considered himself a Pharisee. So his own people, just like John said right at the beginning of the gospel, he's, he said I, he came to his own, but his own what, church? His own rejected him. And so he's experiencing this opposition, increased hostility. Now, why the hostility? We see something happening here in response to the healing. And there's a double response. One, they're angry at him because he's breaking their laws for the Sabbath. Remember, we talked about that last week. So they're angry at him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was disregarding the laws of the Sabbath, which is interesting because he didn't really actually disregard them. The person that broke the law in their minds was the man who was healed, whom Jesus did tell to get up, take up his mat and walk, which he did. What really gets them, though, is that He says, my father is working until now, and I'm working, and that's why they were seeking to kill him. Now, why such hostility? Why such hostility? And it's because of of what's taking place here, that Jesus seems to be saying to their mind, and they, they get it, he's saying that he's equal to God, and that's really rankling them. When a Hebrew came to the name of God in Scripture, They don't even say it. That's how serious this is. God ain't playing. They didn't say it for fear that in saying it, it would be perceived as taking God's name in vain. One of the Ten Commandments. Instead, when they came to the name of God in Scripture, they used a name that combined a bunch of God's names the name Jehovah, that was, they were able to say that. When the scribes, and the scribes, you read about them, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were like legal scholars. These are academics. When they were writing out scripture, no printing press, when they were copying scripture, when they came to the name of God in Scripture, so you're writing out Scripture, they come to God's name, they stop everything and go thoroughly wash their hands. And then they come back and they write God's name. No one could interrupt a scribe if he was in the middle of writing out God's name. It didn't matter who you are. The king could show up. You wait until I get done finishing copying the name of God. This helps you to understand why they were a little bent out of shape when Jesus is doing and saying the things that he does.
My father, Jesus said, is always at his work to this very day. It's the NIV. My father's always at work, and I too. Now, my father, he didn't say our father, that's okay. My father, like you got a personal relationship with him? That's problematic for us. You're making it seem like God is your father. And more than that, you're equating yourself to him. You're making yourself equal with him. And that answer, my father's always at work and I too am working, is completely intolerable to the religious authorities. So they decide, what does the scripture say they decide to do? They didn't, they didn't, they took this so seriously that they didn't say they decided to reason with Jesus a little bit harder. They decided to seek to really dialogue with him to understand what he was saying. They decided to ask a question, like, what what did you mean by that? No, the scripture says they decided to kill him. This is getting violent. The claim Jesus has just made has stunned them. They can hardly believe their ears. Jesus has just claimed to be equal with God. We don't feel that, though. We don't, we, we're not experiencing what they might have experienced. R.C. Sproul is a famous pastor and theologian. He just recently passed away within the last couple of years. And he's, he was a brilliant theologian, but he spoke in a way that was really simple and easy to understand. He tells a humorous story of how he got onto a train once, and it was around dinner time, and he took a seat on the train next to an elderly woman, and, and there was, across the table from them was a younger woman, and the younger woman, when he sat down, was telling the elderly woman a story of an experience that she had just had. She had just come home after two years of being indoctrinated in a camp that was indoctrinating her into New Age philosophy. And so here's R.C. Sproul, an older man, theologian, gives us like, you know, uh, teaches at seminary, pastor. And she tells this elderly woman that's sitting next to R.C. Sproul that after two years she had learned something. She said, I learned that I am God. R.C. said, I didn't say anything. I just tried to mind my own business. But she kept glancing over at R.C., seeing how that, she didn't know who he was. She was glancing over at him to see his reaction. Finally, she looked at R.C. and asked him what he thought about that. And in classic R.C.'s role, he said, this is what he said. He looked at her and he said, well, this is a new experience for me. Because this is the first time in my life that I've been able to sit across from the Almighty. (laughs) She did just what you're doing. She laughed. And then he said, you don't really believe that you're God, do you? And she laughed and said, no, 
not really. And he was glad that in 30 seconds, he was, they were able to dismantle and undo two years of indoctrination. <laughs> but the point is this. We all have some absurd notions of who God is. And what John wrote this gospel, remember we talked about this. We want, oftentimes, a Jesus of our own making. But Jesus, what God's going to give us, is the real Jesus. And what we really need is the real Jesus. Not a Jesus of our own making, but we all form God into what we think he should be, or could be, or better be. What Jesus is going to do here is he's going to give you, he's going to give us a, a, a picture of who he is. A deep understanding of who God is, is what God wants to give us. And so he's written, John has written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this section of Scripture. This is a hard section of Scripture. It's not easy to understand. I've prayed about this because I thought, man, these guys are going to get bored with me as I try to. But, but you need this. Because this is Jesus' claims about who he is. And so the God that we came to worship here on Sunday morning, this informs our worship. Because we need to understand who he is. J.C. Ryle says, to me, this seems like one of the deepest things in the Bible. He would say that this section of John is one of the deepest things he's ever considered because of what Jesus is doing. Nowhere in the other Gospels do we see Jesus making such a formal, systematic, orderly statement on his unity and his equality with the Father. His proof that he really is who the Scripture says he is, the one true light and Savior of the world. And the claims that he makes right here will get him killed. These are bold claims. They're audacious claims. And they've got colossal implications for every single one of us. This was an act on Jesus' part of extraordinary courage because he must have known to speak the way that he spoke was going to, he was going to court death. He knew that when he drops this truth on the listeners, that every listener, and you're all included now, will only get two options as it relates to Jesus. You can either believe in him and have life, or you can reject him. There's no other ground. Jesus will not leave room for any other option when he gets done making these claims. The scripture says, Jesus said to them, the NIV, I think, captures it better. Jesus answered them, and the word answered would be like what we might use in a courtroom. Jesus stands up after hearing these guys respond to him the way that he has. They're persecuting him for healing on the Sabbath and then for equating himself with God, and he gives them a legal defense for I am who I say I am. And it's going to get him in trouble. These are big claims. They are astonishing in their range. And they carry challenges to the mind and heart of every one of us. So Jesus is going to make three. We're going to go over them right now. Three claims. The first claim is this. And if you saw the mark my words as truly, truly, right? Jesus is saying mark my words. 
This is true. And these are where I structure the sermon. The first claim, number one, is from the first truly, truly statement. Jesus is equal with God. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Verse 17, my Father's working until now, and I am working. For whatever, verse 19, back there, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He's equating Himself with God. This is His first claim. Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is equal with God. It's expressed as unity in which the Son is so utterly submitted to the Father that the two are one in the works that they do. The Son, it says, does nothing by Himself. Nothing. How many things does Jesus do on His own? How many things does Jesus do by Himself? None. Zero. Why? Because whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. They are in unison. They are in equity. They are equal. Now, let me, let's just dive a little bit deeper theologically, and let me try to explain something. Because we're talking about the Trinity, which is a deep dive theologically. Very mysterious, very difficult to understand. But when we talk about the Trinity, there are two ways in which we understand the Trinity. There is an ontological understanding and an economical understanding of the Trinity. Ontology, it's the study of being. So we have an ontological understanding of the Trinity. What I mean by that, when we talk about ontology, we're, ta- we're referring to the fact that God is three in one. That's hard for our little minds to get. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, we sing. Three persons in the Godhood. In the Godhead, Father, you say it with me, Son, and who else? Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's ontology. That's ontological. Now, economical. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, when we talk about the economic understanding of the Trinity, we're talking about the roles So we distinguish among the three persons of the Trinity in what we call the economy of God. The Father sends the Son for our redemption. Jesus is the one that through his life, death, and resurrection acquires our redemption. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies that redemption to us. We are talking about different roles. Are they equal? Yes. Do they do different things? Yes. See, but we, 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 we value people based on the role they play. But I want you to understand, we don't have three gods. We have one God, three persons, distinguished in terms of what they do. The Holy Spirit is unified. 
What's that? <laughs> Repeat that. What did I say? One God, three persons, distinguished in terms of what they do. Now, let's just talk about this for a second because we tend to value people or, or, or determine value based on role. If you're the boss, you're the big guy. You're the big honcho. You're the, you're the lady with all the power. You got greater worth. No. It's not like there's a, 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 a breakup or a, a, a disunity in the Trinity based on role. Okay? It's not like the Holy Spirit occasionally says, why does it always have to be about Jesus? <laughs> Jesus this. Jesus that. I'm getting mine today. It's not like Jesus turns to the Father and says, why don't you go to the cross? Why do I got to be the one to go to the cross? Why don't you try it? If you think it's so easy. It's not like that. I read about a man recently who had abandoned the faith, deconstructed. And he said something like this, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and get on the cross? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father in whom I'm well pleased. How could an all-loving, this is a real question though, right? How could an all-loving Father allow his Son to be murdered on a cross? This man has a misunderstanding of John chapter 5. He's got a misunderstanding of the scriptures. He doesn't understand that Jesus' claims of equality with the Father make the Father a sharer in Jesus' sacrifice and his pain and his love. Do you get it? The Son does nothing by himself. The Holy Spirit and the Father were sharing in the pain that the Son endured when he was acquiring our redemption. You get it? This is two hearts, in this case, beating as one because Jesus is equal with God. Now, their unity is grounded in love. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. Now, the word here is not the word, the Greek word typically used to describe the love in the Trinity is a word called agape. That's not the word that John, that Jesus used, that John recorded to describe their love. He uses a different word, phileo, a term that means friendship love. A personal love between friends who delight in sharing everything with one another. Jesus is a separate person who has the power to act on his own, but by virtue of phileo, of love, he does nothing, no action that the Father doesn't do also. The disciples who were there with Jesus saw the Father. When they, when they interacted with Jesus, they saw the Father's smile. They heard the Father's teaching. 
Because if you want to see the Father, all you have to do is look at Jesus. In Jesus, we see the likeness of God the Father. Now, even if we've already embraced that as true, like, I get it, Kenny, why are you taking so much time on this? We must, friends, daily appropriate the reality that Jesus is actually who he says he is, the Son of God. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That must be a constant reality in our lives. We as believers must affirm who Jesus is. Those being baptized on this coming Easter Sunday, right on this stage, must affirm who Jesus is. And he is supreme. The supreme radiance of the glory of God. Amen? To people that are listening right now, I want to say, if you're not a Christian... And I believe there are people that aren't Christians watching our service, sitting here in the service. To you, Jesus makes the same claim. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to assert that for all time and and all eternity. And this big claim continually confronts all of humanity and it demands a response. You guys still with me? I keep a spiritual journal. It wouldn't impress you. It's not written to impress you. None of you will ever read it. It's my communion with God. At the end of every month, I go back and read what I wrote that last month. So it's March 7th. I just did it for February. I read everything that I wrote. And after I read it, I sat and thought about what I read. And I determined that if someone read what I had just read, they would say, those are the writings of a man who loves Jesus. But then another thought rushed into my head. And it's better than that one. Those are the writings of a man that Jesus loves. (laughs) Jesus, God overall, has set his affections on me, on you. The one who holds everything together by the word of his power loves you. 
That changes everything. That ought to be our daily reality. That's the first claim. Second claim, these will go a little bit faster. The second claim, we see, verse 24, truly, truly, mark my words, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Claim number two. The first claim, Jesus is equal with God. Second claim, Jesus has the power to give life. Jesus has the power to give life. The same verse used, or the same word used in verse 8. If you back up to verse 8, where Jesus said to him, get up. I told you last week was used in verse 28, where the writer tells us that an hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear his voice. Get up, and they'll come out. That's the powerful voice of the Son of God. This is illustrating the power of Christ in bringing life to dead limbs in verse 8. Of the, pool, the man at the pool in Bethesda is the identical power which one day will bring the dead of every generation into life from the power of death. Whoever hears my word, Jesus said, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever. Is there anyone in here that has believed in him who sent me? If there are, and I believe there are, if you are here, if you're watching at home, and you're, you have believed in Jesus, you've believed in him whom the Father has sent, you have eternal life. Why? How can you say that? Because Jesus has the power to give life. And you don't have to wait until the last day to begin to experience resurrection life. You get to experience that life right here, right now. Does that mean you don't have troubles? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, though, that Jesus has the power to give life, and he gives you that life now, and you enjoy that life forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. A believer, a Christian, is someone that has crossed over from death into life. That's what it means. The Bible has two categories of people. You are either dead in your sin or you are alive in Christ. That's it. Dead in sin or alive in Christ. If you have believed in Jesus, you are alive in Christ. You've been justified. Your position has eternally changed. You used to be on that team. Now you're on another team. And if Jesus has done that in you, nothing can change it. Because Jesus has the power to give life. If you are in Christ, you are finished with sin. You don't live under the reign and rule of sin and death any longer. You say, well, wait a second. I think I'm in Christ, but I sinned last night. I want to differentiate for you the way Lloyd-Jones differentiates the difference between our position and our experience. Your position can't change. You can't be in Christ, out of Christ, in Christ, out of Christ. You're either justified or you're not. And that's a work of Jesus who has the power to give life. You don't justify yourself. 
There's all the difference in the world between a man's position and a man's experience. A woman's position and a woman's experience. But every person, and all I'm saying there is sometimes you, though your position has permanently changed and you are in Christ, sometimes you don't feel like you are. That's all I'm saying. You didn't change teams though. You're still in Christ. But every person at this moment is either under the rule of sin and death or you are under the rule of and reign of Jesus and grace. You can't have one foot in both kingdoms. You are either in Christ or you're in sin. You are either under the rule and reign of sin and death or under the rule and reign of grace. Which is it, friends? That's an important question. The tenses of the verbs that are being used here indicate that when a person enters into this process, it remains his. When you believe in Jesus, he has the power to give you life. At the moment you believed, you were recreated, redirected, repurposed, remade. What an amazing work the resurrection has done in you. Augustine said it's a far greater work to repair ruined human nature than to make it at first. Did you catch that? Do you ever try to fix something that's totally broken? Sometimes you just say, it's not worth it. I'm just going to throw that out and start over. Amazon will send me a new one of those things. Why am I under here trying to fix this up? It's harder sometimes to recreate than it is to just create. But Jesus won't have that. You and we are, we are broken in our rejection and in our sin against him. But he takes broken humanity and he has the power to recreate, to remake, to repurpose. And that's what he's done in many of you. Give him praise. Amen. In every person that believes, he recreates. Amen. That's the second claim. Jesus has the power to give life. Hang with me for the last one. Jesus, claim three, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He talks in verse 22 about how the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He says in verse 27, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. What's the third claim that Jesus is making? He's made three. He's equal with God. He has the power to bring life. And He has the authority to judge. The authority to judge humanity is the prerogative of deity. It's not yours. It's not mine. There's a sense in which you see, I see a lot of people that get tattoos that say, only God can judge me. And they're right. I just hope they understand the implications of what they've tattooed. Judgment is the prerogative of deity. As creator, God holds all of his creatures accountable to him. He is by definition what he is labeled in the book of Genesis, the judge of all. 
But take notice here, who has been appointed to judge? Who has been given the role of judge? Jesus. Now, when he uses the language of the Son of Man, which he does in verse 27, because he is the Son of Man, many think that here is a reference to Jesus' humanity. It affirms Jesus' fitness to act as our judge because he lived our human life. But I want you to remember whom Jesus is making this legal defense to, and it's the religious leaders of the day. And when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, they knew their religion, they knew their Old Testament, and they knew that he was quoting from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 speaks of the Son of Man who appears in the context of judgment and is seated at the heavenly court. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Look at that phrase. Go home and think on this. The one who has Jesus as Savior has eternal life and will not be condemned, judged adversely. What does this mean? It means that if you are in Christ, you do not go to the final judgment. It says that. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The believer does not come to the final judgment, but leaves the courtroom already acquitted. The judgment reserved for those who reject Jesus, you will never receive if you are in Christ. You don't get a few minutes of it. This whole idea of my friends who are Catholic, this idea of purgatory, that you could spend a little bit of time experiencing God's judgment. But if people keep praying for you and, they do, and you do enough penance, you can get out of that. No, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. What it says here is if you're in Christ, you will not enter into the judgment. You will leave the courtroom already acquitted. Why? Because Jesus took the penalty full in your place. You won't even attend the horrifying judgment. You've been acquitted. Sometimes I meditate on the horrors of hell. And I am so thankful that I will never ever set eyes on the place because I've been acquitted. Jesus has the authority to judge. The note of judgment was seen in the previous illustration. Jesus warned the man. Weren't you confused by that? I didn't comment on it. On verse 14, remember he said, afterward Jesus found the man that he healed in the temple, and he said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now I could preach a whole sermon on that because that's a confusing statement. But suffice it to say, what is, well, ask the question, what is the something worse that could happen? It's when he stands before the Son of Man as one who had personally received his healing grace and yet had not believed Jesus, had not loved Jesus, had not decided to follow Jesus. Jesus is reminding him. This is not works-based salvation that Jesus is teaching. 
He's, he's looking for someone that will believe in him in light of the spiritual healing that's taken place in his life. He's saying Christ the judge will come. Big claims. Jesus is equal with God. He has the power to give life. He has the authority to judge. Big claims, colossal implications. Big claims, eternal implications. It's impossible, friends, to remain neutral in the face of Jesus' claims. C.S. Lewis. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any character in history. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Friends, don't think that you can remain neutral with Jesus. He's not affording you that option. Where are you with respect to Jesus and the claims that he makes? Are you shutting him up for a fool? Are you spitting at him and killing him in your rejection? Or have you fallen at his feet and called him King of Kings, Lord of Lords? Those who have opted for the last option must face this question. What difference is that making in your life? In other words, have you marked Jesus' words? What difference is that making? Jesus is the son who will raise us in the destructive power of death. Jesus is the one whom we would stand before in judgment. So it is urgent, church, that we pay more than lip service to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Amen.